Lesson 8 for May 16 to 22, The Mission of Jesus. Sabbath afternoon, May 16. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open your word again. Humbly we present ourselves before you as pages that need to be filled with information, but mostly with the Holy Spirit. As we read from your word this week, may we be inspired, may we see Jesus as who he is, and may we serve him, we pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's read that again, Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If we were to write a mission statement for Jesus, we could not do any better than to repeat his own words, to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? It was humanity itself, which was alienated from God, subject to death, and filled with fear, disappointment, and despair. If nothing were done in our behalf, all would be lost. Thanks to Jesus, though, we all have great reasons to be hopeful. As Ellen White writes in Steps to Christ, page 20, In the apostasy, man alienated himself from God, earth was cut off from heaven. Across the gulf that lay between, there could be no communion, but through Christ, earth is again linked with heaven. With his own merits, Christ has bridged the gulf which sin had made. Christ connects fallen man in his weakness and helplessness with the source of infinite power. End of quote. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a story of God seeking after lost humanity. Luke illustrates this truth by using three important parables. The lost sheep in chapter 15, the lost coin in the same chapter, and later on in the same chapter, the lost son. Sunday, May 17, The Lost Sheep and the Lost Coin Question. Read Luke chapter 15, verses 4 to 7. What does this tell us about God's love for us? Why is it so important to understand that it was the shepherd who went looking for the lost sheep? Beginning at verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. In a world that can appear uncaring and indifferent to us, this parable reveals a startling truth. God loves us so much that he himself will come after us in order to bring us to him. 
We often talk about people seeking God. In reality, God is seeking us. As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 483, the soul that has given himself to Christ is more precious in his sight than the whole world. The Saviour would have passed through the agony of Calvary that one might be saved in his kingdom. He will never abandon one for whom he has died. Unless his followers choose to leave him, he will hold them fast. Read Luke 15 verses 8 and 9. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And, when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. This parable is found only in Luke. The lost coin could have one of two meanings. First, Judea during the time of Jesus was full of poor people, and in most homes, one coin or a drachma could have been more than a day's wage, barely enough to keep the family from starving. Second, as a mark of being married, some women wore a headdress made up of ten coins, a huge sum saved over a long time in the case of poor families. In either case, the loss was a serious matter, so the woman, utterly broken and in deep grief, lights a lamp, the house perhaps had no windows, or perhaps only a small window, picks up a broom, and turns the house upside down until she finds that coin. Her soul is filled with overflowing joy, and the overflow floods to all her friends. As Ellen White writes in Christ Object Lessons, page 194, the coin, though lying among dust and rubbish, is a piece of silver or gold still. Its owner seeks it because it is of value. So every soul, however degraded by sin, is in God's sight accounted precious. As the coin bears the image and superscription of the reigning power, so man at his creation bore the image and superscription of God. And though now marred and dim through the influence of sin, the traces of this inscription remain upon every soul. And so to finish today, so much of modern science and philosophy tells us that we are nothing but chance creations in a meaningless universe that does not care at all about our fate for us. What completely different worldview is presented in these two parables? Monday, May 18, The Parable of the Lost Son, Part 1 Hailed in history as the most beautiful short story ever told on the forgiving nature of love, the parable of the prodigal son recorded in Luke 15 verses 11 to 32, narrated only by Luke, may well be called the parable of the loving father and two lost sons. One son chose the lawlessness of the distant land over the love of the father. The other son chose to stay in the home but did not fully know the love of the father or the meaning of a brother. 
the parable may be studied in seven parts, four dealing with the prodigal, two with the father, and one with the elder brother. Part 1. Give me, as it says in Luke 15, verse 12. Let's read that verse. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. The younger son's decision to demand of his father his portion of the property was no sudden impulsive urge. Sin often results after a long time of brooding over misplaced priorities. The younger son must have heard from friends about the glitter and glamour of distant lands. Life at home was too rigid. Love was there, but it had its own boundaries. The distant land offered him life without restrictions. The father was too protective, his love too embracing. The son wanted freedom, and in the quest for unhindered freedom was the seed of rebellion. Part 2. Why me? And that's verses 13 to 16. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. The son cashed in his entire share and set off to the far country. The far country is a place far away from the father's home. Love's caring eyes, law's protective fence, grace's ever-present embrace are foreign in the far country. It is a distant land of riotous living, as it said in verse 13. The Greek word for riotous, as ostos, appears three other times as a noun in the New Testament. For drunkenness, in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, rebelliousness, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, and debauchery that includes lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, as in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4. Such pleasures of godless living wasted away his health and wealth, and soon he became moneyless, friendless, and foodless. His glittering life wound up in a gutter, starving to the point of being in perpetual want, he found employment in caring for the pigs. A harsh fate for a Jew. Part 3. Make me. This is Luke chapter 15, verses 17 to 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But even the prodigal is still a son, with the power of choice to turn around. So the son came to his senses. 
and remembered a place called home, a person known as Father, a relational bond called love. He walked back home with a speech in his hand to plead with the Father, Make me, that is, make me whatever you want, but let me be within your watchful eyes, within the care of your love. What better home is there but the Father's heart? And so to finish today, the world can appear very alluring. What specific things of the world do you find yourself particularly tempted by that you find yourself thinking, oh, that's not so bad, when deep down you know it is? Tuesday, May 19, The Parable of the Lost Son, Part 2 Part 4, The Return Home Luke chapter 15, verses 17 to 20 reads, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. These verses tell the story of a journey of repentance. The journey began when he came to himself. Recognition of where he was in comparison with what his father's home was drove him to arise and go to his father. The prodigal son returns home with a four-part speech that defines the true meaning of repentance. First, there is an acknowledgement of the father as my father in verse 18. The prodigal son now needs to lean upon and trust his father's love and forgiveness, just as we must learn to trust in our heavenly father's love and forgiveness. Second, confession. What the prodigal did is not an error of judgment, but a sin against God and his Father, as it said in verse 18. And third, contrition. I am no longer worthy, in verse 19. Recognition of one's unworthiness in contrast to the worthiness of God is essential for true repentance to take place. And fourth, petition. Make me he says in verse 19, surrender to whatever God wills is the destination of repentance. The Son has come home. And part 5, the waiting father. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 and 21. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. The wait and the vigil, the grief and the hope, began at the moment the prodigal son stepped out of the home. The wait was over when the father saw him a great way off, and then had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, as it said in verse 20. No other image captures the character of God 
as that of the waiting father. Part 6. The Rejoicing Family, verses 22 to 25. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and we'll read about that later. The father embraced the son, clothed him with a new robe, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, and ordered a feast. The family was in celebration. If leaving the home was death, the return was a resurrection and worthy of rejoicing. The son was indeed a prodigal, but nevertheless a son. And over every repentant son there is joy in heaven." And part 7, the elder son, beginning at verse 25, right through to verse 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him, safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. The younger son was lost when he stepped out of the home to go to a distant land. The older son was lost because, though he was home in the body, his heart was in a distant land. Such a heart is angry, complaining and self-righteous, as we see in verses 28 and 29, and refuses to recognize a brother. Instead, it recognizes only a son of yours, a spendthrift without character, as it says in verse 30. The elder son's attitude toward the father is the same as that of the Pharisees who accused Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The father's final word with his elder son reflects the heaven's attitude to all repentant sinners. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. So to finish today, put yourself in the older brother's shoes. However wrong his thinking, why does it make so much sense that he would feel that way? How does this story reveal ways in which the gospel goes beyond what makes sense? Well, 
Wednesday, May 20, Lost Opportunities Although Jesus came to seek and save those lost in sin, he never forces anyone to accept the salvation he offers. Salvation is free and available to all, but one must accept the free offer in faith, which results in a life of conformity with God's will. The only time we have for such an experience is while we live on earth. No other opportunity exists. Question. Read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through to 31. What's the main message in this parable? Beginning at verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The parable is recorded only in Luke, and it teaches two great truths with respect to salvation. The importance of today in the process of salvation and the absence of another opportunity for salvation after death. Today is the day of salvation. The parable does not teach that there is something inherently evil in riches or something inescapably good in being poor. What it does teach is that the opportunity of being saved and living saved must not be missed while we are on this earth. Rich or poor, educated or illiterate, powerful or powerless, we have no second chance. All are saved and judged by their attitude today, now, to Jesus. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. The parable also teaches that eternal reward has nothing to do with material possessions. The rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fed sumptuously every day, verse 19, but missed the essential of life, God. Where God is not recognized, fellow human beings are not noticed. The rich man's sin was not in his richness, 
but in his failure to recognize that God's family is broader than he was prepared to accept. There is no second chance for salvation after death. The second inescapable truth that Jesus teaches here is that there is no second chance for salvation after death. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Another point of this parable is to show people that we have been given enough evidence now in this life to make a conscious choice for or against God. Any theology that teaches some kind of second chance after death is a great deception. So to finish today, we love to talk about how much God loves us and all that he has done and is doing to save us. What should this parable teach us, though, about the danger of taking God's love and offer of salvation for granted? Thursday, May 21, was blind, but now I see. The mission statement of Jesus that he came to seek and save that which was lost is an affirmation of a holistic ministry. He came to make men and women whole, to transform them physically, mentally, spiritually, and socially. Luke gives us two instances that illustrates how Jesus restored two broken men into wholeness. One was blind physically, the other spiritually. Both were outcasts, one a beggar and the other a tax collector. But both men were candidates for Christ's saving mission and neither was beyond his heart or reach. Question. Read Luke chapter 18 verses 35 to 43. What does this passage teach about your utter dependence upon God? Who among us at times has not cried out, Have mercy on me? Beginning at verse 35 in chapter 18, Then it happened, as he was coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And, hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Mark names the man as Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. He was a beggar outside of Jericho, physically challenged, socially of no consequence, and poverty-stricken, he suddenly found himself in the sweep of heaven's wonder. Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, it said in verse 37. And his faith surged upward to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, in verse 39. 
faith requires neither eyes nor ears, neither feet nor hands, but only a heart that connects to the Creator of the world. Question. Read Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Who is the blind man in this story? Beginning at at verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner? Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Only Luke records the story of Zacchaeus, the last of Jesus' many encounters with outcasts. Christ's mission to seek and save that which was lost was gloriously fulfilled in this encounter with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was Jericho's chief tax collector, a chief sinner in the judgment of the city's Pharisees, but a chief sinner sought and saved by the Saviour. What strange places and methods Jesus used to accomplish his mission. A sycamore tree, a curious man seeking to see who Jesus was, and a loving Lord commanding the man to come down, for he had a self-invited lunch appointment with him. But more important, Jesus had a delivery to make. Today, salvation has come to this house, in verse 9. But not before Zacchaeus made things right, as we read in verse 8. So to finish today, it's easy to see other people's faults and shortcomings, isn't it? But we can so often be blind to our own. What are some areas in your life that you need to face up to, confess, and get the victory over, which you have been putting off for way too long? Friday, May 22. From the book Christ Object Lessons, page 190, comes this short sentence. By the lost sheep, Christ represents not only the individual sinner, but the one world that has apostatized and has been ruined by sin. And from Christ Object Lessons, page 196. On the value of one soul, the value of a soul, who can estimate... Would you know its worth? Go to Gethsemane and there watch with Christ through those hours of anguish, when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Look upon the Saviour uplifted on the cross, at the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner, 
Christ would have laid down his life, you may estimate the value of a soul. And that brings us to our discussion questions today. There are five. Number one, while all religions portray the human being in search of God, Christianity presents God as the seeker. Adam, where are you? Genesis 3, 9. Cain, where is your brother? Genesis 4, 9. Elijah, what are you doing here? 1 Kings 19, verse 9. Zacchaeus, come down. Luke 19, verse 5. What has been your own experience with God seeking you out? Question 2. Look again at the final question at the end of Tuesday's study. What was the fatal mistake that the older son made? What spiritual defects were revealed in his attitude? Why is it easier to have that same attitude than we might think? Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the labourers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the labourers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Question 3. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said that even if someone were to come back from the dead, there would be those who would not believe. In what ways did this parable foretell the reaction of some to the resurrection of Jesus, in which some still didn't believe, despite the powerful evidence for his resurrection? Question 4. One of the most impressive aspects of Jesus' saving ministry is the equality with which he treated all people, such as the blind beggar and Zacchaeus, or Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. The cross, more than anything else, shows the equality of all people before God. How should this crucial truth impact how we treat others, even those toward whom, because of politics, culture, ethnicity, whatever, we might have previously held ill feelings? 
Why is that attitude so anti-Jesus? And question five. Compare the story of the prodigal son with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. How do the two balance each other out? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Praise Instead of Prejudice and it's from Daesung Kim from South Korea. Office buildings surround the Seoul Central Seventh-day Adventist Church and it is very difficult to make contact with people. When I was pastoring there, I thought that it might be effective for the church to operate a vegetarian restaurant. If we provided fresh food and friendly service, perhaps the nearby office workers would like it. When I first approached the church about this idea, most members were against it because they already had tried this but had failed. I assured them that I wouldn't use the church budget and that Ellen White had said many times that if we established this kind of restaurant in the cities, it would be very successful. At last, the members agreed. As a non-profit organisation, the church isn't permitted to own a restaurant, so I organised a health association and invited those working in the surrounding offices to join so that they could eat in our restaurant. During the next three months, I visited every office and invited each person to become a member of our health association. I explained that we would provide the freshest vegetarian food and that by becoming a member of the association, they could eat this delicious food Monday through to Friday. The membership fee was the equivalent of US $100 per month. Many people signed up. The church members and I distributed more than 500 free meal tickets. Each recipient was entitled to one free meal on a certain day at the restaurant. We were happily surprised when nearly 500 guests arrived. As they enjoyed their meals, I announced that as members of the Health Association, they could eat here every day. Many joined. To operate this kind of restaurant is not easy. It's important to have a good building and the church pastor must have a good relationship with the community. Of course, the food is important. If it isn't tasty, the guests won't continue coming. A few years after we started, we lost our cook and her replacement wasn't as skilled. As the food quality went down, so did the number of guests. Once we replaced her, the food quality improved and again membership in the Health Association rose. We found that there are many benefits coming from this venture. In Korea, many people think that Adventists are an unwanted sect. Because of this mindset, some were reluctant to visit the restaurant. But as our vegetarian restaurant became more well-known, Christian church pastors, Buddhist monks and priests decided to come. After getting to know us, these people have only praise for our church instead of prejudice. Many of our guests have high statuses in the community. By God's grace, our vegetarian restaurant has been operating successfully for more than 12 years. It is one of the 117 centres of influence in South Korea. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. 
Remember, God is always faithful.